Hello there. Servus. My name is Hashan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the war scare between Iran and Arabia that happened last week. We're going to be talking about Brazil's elections, their outcomes. And then we're going to talk about some of the hype surrounding North Korea and really expand that into a talk about a lot of the other hotspots that are heating up around the world. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news for today's episode. And we're going to start with Netanyahu retaking the Israeli Prime Minister. That's Benjamin Netanyahu. If you remember, he was Israel's previous Prime Minister before uh, the the latest Prime Minister. And apparently he is now back in power. Uh, Israel's in a bit of a bit of a political crisis. And I guess that's uh, the case for a lot of countries around the world right now. Especially for countries in this region, uh, Lebanon being a good example, uh, along with Iran, sort of. the That crisis is a bit different. It's not parliamentary as much as it is unrest in the streets. That you have a political crisis in Lebanon, a political crisis in Israel, a political crisis in Iraq. Uh, the Iraqi parliament is going through some a wild ride, to say the least. And well, Syria is in a civil war, so I guess that puts them uh, a, that gives them a de facto place on that list. But lots of political crises. Uh, hopefully, it remains parliamentary, but you can see the ability for this to spill out onto the streets very quickly. I mean, just a few months back, when Muqtada al Sadir so much as hinted at quitting politics, uh, he's a major political figure in Iraq. A political and religious figure in Iraq, there was violence in the streets. People turned out and stormed the, the the green zone, as the United States troops called the area. This is a area for the Iraqi government that was supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be like this perimeter that people don't get into, this the secure area. Yeah, people breached that in a day. And probably could have done some serious damage if they really wanted to. But I guess they were more so making the point. And this is thankfully on the on the part of the Iraqi government. And thankfully on the part of people who don't want to see more violence. I mean, this, this is a region that has enough violence as is. But you can see just off of instances like that. And I, you can also point to what happened in Sri Lanka as well. But... Instances like that can show you just how fast this political crisis that, for the time being, is limited to the governments themselves in this region. You can see how quickly that can spill out into a crisis on the streets. Then you have a problem. And you can, again, you can apply this to Iran as well. Uh, Iran's a little bit of a different case, but you can see the potential there for things to go wrong in a very big way. But Netanyahu is now back as the Israeli Prime Minister. 
can he pull Israel out of its tailspin? That remains to be seen. I mean, he was booted out before. Will he be booted out again? Or will he, you know, get a second wind in him? We'll just have to wait and see. In other news, we have the attempted assassination of Imran Khan. This is the prime minister of Pakistan until, I believe, about a year ago when he was booted from power. And he there's been an attempted assassination on him now. And he was shot four times, uh, and he, he lived. So it was only an attempted assassination, but he lived, but he was shot. He's in the hospital now. And I, I gotta say, I wasn't expecting that. I was not expecting that. But I, in my mind, I, I just can't help but think, I think Pakistan has more pressing issues at, at hand right now than... <laughs> Then the former prime minister, uh, considering that half the country is underwater, like uh, I, I just saw a map the other day of the water, the water level in Pakistan. And so normally it's just the Indus River that flows roughly down the middle of the country, north to south. Usually that's where all the water is. But like you, you see these big patches of blue where the water is just spilled out onto the floodplains. And it's it's insane. It's insane. It's, this is a, a truly biblical level thing that they are dealing with. And for some reason, it only seems to get worse. Like, I, I'm not sure if the water levels have started to recede yet. But goodness, these floods, they just, they just won't stop. They just won't stop. And so in my mind, I, I can't help but think that you guys have more pressing issues at hand than your former prime minister who's living life as a civilian now. Uh, that's just what goes on in my mind. I'm not entirely sure why they felt the need to perpetrate this act or why they would choose now to do... Well, actually, uh, if they were going to do it, now would be the better time to do it since he's not you know, as protected as he would have been as a sitting prime minister. But, again, uh, just... Uh, a difference in what I would assume to be the priorities, but uh, hey, I'm not a, I'm not the government of Pakistan. I don't live in Pakistan, and I don't want to. I do not want to. I want none of what they're having. But that happened. We have the Russian Foreign Ministry. Uh, this is a part of a broader uh, press briefing that they were given, where they dismissed the idea of Romania having territorial claims to Ukraine, saying that, that idea was false. And so we get the idea now circulating that Romania might step in at some point. And I'm, I'm not even entirely convinced that this is an idea being perpetrated by the Romanians themselves, but more so the United States and NATO, because we, we are moving troops into Romania we actually, we have military personnel in Ukraine now as well, or at least it's become public that we do, and they're inching their way closer and closer to the front lines. Uh, the, the, the excuse given is that, they're, oh, there's not that many, they're, they're only there for training um, of the Ukrainian troops, they're there for inspection of the weapons and all the excuses that you would expect from professional liars. But... All it takes is for any one group of these people to end up bombed, 
whether by the Russians or by the Ukrainians or by themselves as a false flag attempt, and then you're immediately going to have us blaming Russia for the death of these people in Ukraine who shouldn't be there, mind you, who really, really should not be there. You're going to get the death of these people blamed on Russians, and then that's going to be used as some type of excuse to go to war with Russia or at the very least to escalate what we're already doing to Russia, if not to a open war. So, again, uh, as I've talked about in previous episodes, we're playing a dangerous game of brinkmanship. This can all go south so incredibly fast, and if it does, we all die. But for the time being, we'll just we'll just hope that they're not that dumb. Although this the bar is set pretty low on that. Uh, either that or the, the Russians get going on this winter offensive, but I, I imagine they still have a, a few more weeks left on that. But from the I'm what I'm getting now, uh, speaking of the Russians, is that about eighty nine to ninety thousand of those reservists that they called up have made their way to Ukraine. Now, where the remaining two hundred thousand are going to go whether they go to Ukraine or if they go to places in, say, a, near Kharkov. If you look at a map of Europe, and you see Ukraine, and you see the city of Kharkov. There's that big chunk of Russia right just north of the city. They could be deployed there. They could also be deployed into Belarus. We know that there's a joint unit of Belarusian military and Russian military being formed up there. I feel Russia is going to attack from multiple angles again, except this time they're going to they're going to mean it and they're going to go hard. So where these remaining reservists go might be pretty indicative of that. And whether they all go into Ukraine or if they do go to these other places along the Ukrainian border, including parts of the Ukrainian border with Belarus. So it'll be interesting to see where they get deployed to. And ultimately, it'll be more interesting to see what happens in the end when the offensive gets going. So that for now, we're just speculating. But 89,000 have made their way to the front, which comes pretty close to closing the gap in terms of numbers between the Russian forces and Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians have had 160,000 to 200,000 troops in Ukraine this entire time. The Ukrainians have had an army of 350,000 that they can maintain. With lots of people in reserve. So if we go with the 200,000 figure. Then these 89,000 men coming in. Almost closes the gap. Almost closes the gap. Because now you're talking 290,000. To 350,000. That, that, that's greatly closing the gap. And remember Russia's been outnumbered 2 to 1 this whole time. So as those numbers start to even out, and then eventually you get Russian numerical superiority, by the time this mobilization is complete and everyone's in position, you're going to have a very, very, very different dynamic on the battlefield. And Russia, meanwhile, until they finish this, is they've continued their missile bombardment of Ukraine, at primarily targeting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. They're targeting energy, they're targeting rails, they're targeting supply depots. Basically everything we expected the Russians would do at the beginning of the war that they chose not to do, they're doing it now. So they're softening up Ukraine's back lines, all the civilian infrastructure, all their logistics, 
So when they break through, when they achieve breakthrough, when this offensive happens, it's going to be really hard for the Ukrainians to counter that when everything behind their front line is rubble. So it'll be, it'll be very, very interesting to see how this offensive goes. It'll be, I'll just say that much. It'll be very interesting to see how that goes. Meanwhile, you have the UK trade minister uh, preparing to make a visit to Taiwan. Now, this is probably for semiconductors, if I have to guess. That's sort of Taiwan's main export here. Uh, he's making a visit to Taiwan. And this has naturally angered China, who has denounced the visit and has probably continued to accelerate plans for taking the island by force so that things like this will stop happening to them. Uh, going back to Nancy Pelosi, her visit to Taiwan, you had the various other congressmen in the U.S. making random visits to Taiwan. What they achieved, by the way, is uh, beyond me. I, I couldn't tell you. You have that. You had the almost recognition of Taiwan under Trump before he left before he left us to the, the wolves. And so, at every step of the way, you see that the Chinese are incentivized to take this island by force, considering that for them, it is actually a matter of national security. Like, this island means infinitely more to China than it will ever mean to people in America, let alone people in Britain. Like, it's just a matter of geography. Taiwan will always mean more to China than anyone else. We talk about China contain China in the first island chain. That, that's the chain of islands running from Sakhalin, which is the, the big island north of Japan. Down through Japan, you have uh, the, the string of islands, including Saipan, in, I believe, Iwo Jima. No, 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 Iwo Jima is further out. But you can see the string of islands running from Sakhalin, down to Japan, the, there's a smaller string of islands uh, down to Taiwan, then you get to the Philippines, and you go to Indonesia. That's the, the first island chain. And you have this so-called strategy that people want to implement where they're going to contain China by having the entire first island chain be encompassed within a U.S. alliance structure, and Taiwan is the, the linchpin of that. And... If China takes Taiwan, oh, it's the end. It's the end of the world, basically. Even though we we're still thousands of miles away, and even if they take Taiwan, it's still a thousand miles just to get to Guam. So I I don't trust them when they make such claims like that. But ultimately, I don't see how you're going to contain China. I don't see how we're going to contain China. Like we have we have all this meddling going on that I feel is only ever going to get. That the only thing that's going to be accomplished with all this, uh, the Americans sending uh, politicians to Taiwan, now the UK sending its trade delegation to Taiwan, well, its trade minister, but all I feel that this is going to accomplish is the destruction of Taiwan as an independent state. Now, that's what I feel is going to happen. And I don't see how it ends any other way unless we back off. That, but no one wants to back off. So, I just see this ending really poorly for Taiwan, and everyone's gonna pretend that it that we had no part in creating that outcome. But Taiwan, 
Taiwan, I, I guess. They, they've chosen to go along with it. They've chosen to go along with it. They do want to maintain the status quo. See, that that's what they want. They want to maintain the status quo so that they don't get stripped, annexed, or invaded. But their attempts to maintain the status quo only end up empowering attempts on the part of the United States and a part of uh, the Europe and United Kingdom, but primarily the United States, those attempts at maintaining the status quo empower us to go pressing the on to go pushing the envelope, which in turn, and this is sort of the the chain reaction here, uh, us pushing the envelope makes China lean heavier and heavier on the idea of taking Taiwan by force. So Taiwan doing what would be natural for them to do, which is try to maintain the status quo, which they have benefited from so much, has set, due to the forces involved in the countries that they're dealing with, has set in motion a chain of events that will lead to them getting invaded. And that's sort of a, a tragedy here. The, the Taiwanese doing their damnedest diplomatically, because they, they aren't doing it militarily, but doing their damnedest diplomatically to maintain their sovereignty is what is ultimately going to lead them to being invaded. And that, that's sad, it's a shame that it will happen that way, but that's the way it's going to happen. Uh, unless things change in either China or America. And considering that this island is more important to China than it will ever be to America, it would have to be the United States to make the change. So we'll, we'll see how things go there. I I think Taiwan's going to end up a I think they're going to end up as a geographic expression for southeast China at some point. But lastly, we have officials from Ethiopia. Uh Ethiopia and Tigray meeting in Nairobi to begin talks on disarmament after signing a permanent ceasefire. We talked about that ceasefire. We talked about how it fell apart quickly, or at least that's the way it seemed, because there was shooting and shootouts and shelling uh, after the ceasefire. The ceasefire, the ceasefire was signed, but it seems that both sides have managed to wrangle in the, these bad actors, at least well enough to keep them from shooting at each other, and so they've reined them in, and now they're coming to the table, and I think this is a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. This is probably going to end with uh, a good deal of autonomy for the Tigray region, but they'll still remain a part of Ethiopia. This will raise a number of questions for what happens with the rest of Ethiopia's constituent parts. Maybe they will ag agitate for similar levels of autonomy, uh, but that's probably issues that will pop up later on down the line. But for the time being, it looks like we're having a genuine effort on the part of both Tigray and the Ethiopian federal government to bring the war to a close. And this has uh, been brokered by the African Union, and it's a really good thing that's happening right now. They've been fighting for two years. They've been fighting since 2020. So now this war comes to an end. My fears that something happened to the Renaissance Dam are finally... <laughs> are, for the time being, being put to rest because, well, there's still Egypt. Egypt is still the wild card there. Uh, and my reasoning for them being the wild card is because their society doesn't exist without the Nile. 
if the Nile dries up, so too does Egypt as a country. They're not going to allow that to happen. So, I think that that dam is not quite out of the woods yet. But as far as bad actors from the Civil War being the saboteurs, we can now begin to rule that out of the question. But in other news, it looks like Ethiopia's civil war is finally coming to an end. I imagine Syrians and Libyans everywhere are outraged and jealous. But alas, that's the rapid fire news. And now we can get into the meat of this episode. And we'll get there in just a moment. Alright, time to get into the meat of this episode. And we have some more juice. It's juicy, just like last episode. Uh, and we'll start with Iran and Arabia, specifically the war scare that happened between them. Uh, last week, there was, well, a war scare. Uh, there was a belief among the Arabian officials and the Arabian, the Saudi Arabian government that tensions had spiked between them and Iran to such a degree that they believed war would happen, well, they believed war could happen within 48 hours, and this was back in, like, month. Tuesday, Monday, uh, so this, obviously, at the time of me recording this, this hasn't happened, but they had reached that point, so, uh, this is more of an anomaly, rather than a general trend, as Arabia and Iran have been undergoing quite the reproachment, so I imagine that this is going to be a hiccup to that, but they'll ultimately return to that reproachment, uh, in the long run, but this is quite the hiccup. Uh, war isn't exactly a, a laughing matter. Uh, Iran, they've been in a state of unrest, mass unrest, over the past few weeks. But what happened, le- interestingly, that what happened last week, was that they started naming names for who they thought was responsible for this. They accused America, Saudi Arabia, and Israel of instigating the unrest and the riots in Iran. And if we're, if we're being honest, we're going to keep it a buck fifty here. They're probably right, you know. I mean, we do this sort of thing all the time. Israel does this sort of thing all the time. Arabia dabbles in this sort of thing all the time. So, they're probably right. But, it's it's what happens next that sort of, sort of casts doubt onto what's going to happen in this region moving forward. Because things are actually moving in a, a decently positive direction. Yet, again, you had that rapprochement between Arabia and Iran. You had Iran gaining, as Iran was gaining strength in this region, I have referred to Iran multiple times as the, the dominant power of the Middle East. Things were moving well. I mean, you we were seeing gradually... The, the ending of the Syrian civil war as a part of a joint effort between the Assad government, Iran, uh, Iranian militias fighting in Syria, as well as Russian military personnel fighting in Syria, on the so- both of which on the side of the Assad government. We were slowly but surely seeing the end of that. We saw Iran coming into the aid of Lebanon, providing energy. Energy which came by sea and by land, and the energy that came by land, this is oil, I'm saying energy, but it's oil, uh, that land route had to go through Iraq and Syria to get to Lebanon. If you look at the the map, 
that's the only way you're going to get by land from Iran to Lebanon. So what you had there was a an agreement between Iran, uh, not Iran, an agreement between Iraq and Syria with Iran to let them move through their territories to provide this energy to Lebanon. Things were moving in a pretty decent direction. We were seeing a a, a gradual con- and not a, well actually no. I was about to say we were seeing a gradual conclusion to the, the war in Yemen, but uh, I'll hold my tongue on that one. But we were seeing a positive direction. Sort of, and the, the way was sort of being led by Iran. They were the spearhead of this positive direction that the Middle East was gradually being taken into. And Arabia was on board, at least nominally with their rapprochement but with this with the with this mass unrest in iran that they are blaming on america that they're blaming on arabia and israel that casts doubt on whether we will continue that generally positive direction because now they've brought israel and arabia into this equation and again they're probably right if just judging off the off the track records of all the countries they've named, you're probably right. But they've brought Israel and Arabia into the equation and they've threatened to take what they deemed as the necessary actions to safeguard their sovereignty. Cause they don't like having foreigners meddling in their affairs. Especially Israel. Uh, I'll just I'll I'll name right off the bat I I believe them one hundred percent. When, I, when they say that Israel played a part in this, I can believe it. I, I can believe it. And the reason I can say that so definitively. Now, maybe I'm wrong. But the reason I will say definitively I believe it is because of that one story. Uh, well, really because of what we witnessed over the past these few years that I've been doing this podcast. We, we've seen Israel interfering with Iran. They do it all the time. But it was one story in particular that makes me believe all of it. And it was... That one story where you had an Iranian nuclear scientist. He was he was in a convoy, like you know, like a how when the president rides around the country, there's like a, a a train of cars that ride around the motorcade. This nuclear scientist was in one of those, right? He was in the car, and they were in a, a nice procession, moving through the streets, and these two men on motorcycles, these Israeli agents, pull up to him shoot him dead and then drive off as though this was as, as though this was an action movie as as though this was a ch- a chase scene in an action movie a, a thriller i i could not believe my eyes when i read the story i couldn't believe my eyes but it happened he that that man is dead and it was these israeli agents that killed him so when you see things like that, such overt acts of, well, aggression, quite frankly, and bordering on terrorism, but when you, you see a state like Israel willing to commit such blatant acts of aggression against their neighbor like that, I believe Iran when they accuse Israel of playing a part in garnering and instigating this unrest. I don't believe it. Shoot. Now, I might be wrong. But I, but I, I can, I can believe it. I can believe it.
judging off the track record of these countries. Especially with America. I, I believe that 100% too. But they're calling Israel and Arabia into this equation. They're threatening to do whatever they need to do to safeguard their sovereignty. And essentially what they've done is they've put the Saudis and the Israelis on notice. Like, however, uh, any action they take, and this is my primary issue with what's going on here, because if it was just between them and the Saudis, if it was just between them and the Israelis, it would be entertaining to watch. Uh, I'll admit, it would be entertaining to watch from a couple thousand miles away, as I am and will remain. But the actions they take, any action they take against Israel or Arabia, would immediately lead to calls by those two for U.S. aid and U.S. intervention. And U.S. aid means America getting drawn into other people's wars. So this is my primary gripe with what's going on here, and this is why I feel that it's a, a bigger story, is because... If this blows over, well, not blows over, if this blows up, eh, perhaps it, if this goes south, I know for a fact it won't go as south as, say, what we're doing in Europe right now towards Russia, but if this goes south, you're still going to end up with a war, and we're still going to end up with U.S. boots on the ground in the Middle East. Something that's very unpopular, by the way. Something which would probably only see resistance from the people who want us to reserve boots on the ground for Taiwan and people who want us to stay focused on Ukraine and Russia. But, uh, so resistance for all the wrong reasons, but if this blows up in our face, we end up getting drawn into other people's wars. And this is precisely what I mean. It's situations like this. Because on its face, you, you you wouldn't even think to include the United States. Like, sure, that they were accusing us of instigating problems in their country, but how does that equate to us ending up in the, the, the situation that I've outlined? On its face, you would never come to that conclusion because it's ludicrous. We're all the way over here. They're all the way over there. Maybe they might fight their neighbors over it, but how does that end up with a fight with the United States? How do we end up in this situation? Well, that's... It's the U.S. alliance system. It's the U.S. alliance system. And this is what I mean when I say that the U.S. alliance system is a detriment to us. Of course, the Israelis and the Arabians are happy to have us come defend them so they can sit on their ass and do nothing. And so, I guess in the case of both of them, they can continue committing atrocities against their neighbors, the Arabians against the Yemenis, the Israel, the Israelis against the Palestinians. They would love to have us come defend their borders for them while they continue to do their, well, I wouldn't even say nation-building project, their nation deconstruction projects in Yemen and in Palestine. And yet we are on the hook for their defense. We're on the hook for their defense. It's a detriment to us. This is exactly what I mean when I say that all these defense and security guarantees that we give out like candy are only useful for getting us into trouble that we don't need to be in. Because let's think about this. Think about How does protests, riots, and general unrest in Iran 
domino into us potentially getting drawn into a war with Iran. Like, in what world would that logically make sense? Unless you have the U.S. alliance system acting as the intermediary dominoes for that to happen. It's it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. We need to get out of this system unless we want to end up in these situations. And that, that's one of the things I'm afraid of as well, is that people want to be in these situations. People wanted to be in with Ukraine. People want us to just fight Russia. People want us to fight China over Taiwan. They'll swear up and down that they don't, but their actions will say all you need to hear otherwise. It's it's a dangerous thing being just being a part of this alliance system. Cuz the second we take our eyes off of one place, it, it could blow up in our face anyway. If we're paying attention to it, it can blow up in our face. If we're not paying attention to it, it can blow up in our face. We can end up in a conflict with or without our consent. And that's the biggest kicker in all this. That's the biggest detriment of this U.S. alliance system. Not to mention the the fact that we just drain our wealth away, promising to protect everybody, and expending our own wealth and our own goods and giving away our own industry for the sake of maintaining it. But to top that off, we can go end up in a war against our will. And it's it's insane to think about. It's ins- People take it for granted. People just assume that this is just the natural way of things. People just assume that this is just the way that it's going to be. In the way that it was always meant to be. But it's not. It is not meant to be this way. It's This is not normal. But yet. But yet. This is the thing that. Sits in the background. Every time something. That seems completely unrelated. Happens. Uh, again. Unrest in Iran. Domino. 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 Now we're involved in the situation. And. Sure, there's some talk of strained relations between America and Arabia over Arabia's production cuts, raising gas prices over here right before the midterms. But let's get real. Let's let's just let's be real here. Let's be real. That's all talk. (laughs) That's all talk. That's uh, strained relations or not. We all know that we'd still end up at war for them anyway if they asked us to. If they were invaded and they asked us to come to their aid, we would still end up at war with Iran. Let's let's all be honest here. I, I say we, but it's really it's really me just seeing through the the veil of propaganda that's going to be spewed about. Oh, we have no interest. Oh, no, no. We stand by our partners. Yada 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 yada. All that old nonsense. But that's. That's one of the dangers that I see, and perhaps it's because I'm a critic of the U.S. alliance system that I'm able to see it at all, because I imagine it would blindside other people who themselves aren't critics of the U.S. empire and aren't critics of the American foreign policy and consistent with that that, uh, criticism, because people... 
people have consistency issues, I've noticed. Uh, and this is not a political thing. It's actually pretty bipartisan. But if you're consistent in that criticism, it becomes easy to see. At least that's that's my observation. But in the next piece of news we have, we have Brazil's elections. And this has been the biggest story of last week, at least the one that I can see. Uh, and again, this is uh, until the Russian winter offensive begins. That'll That'll suck the oxygen out of the room and I'll just be talking about Ukraine and Russia nonstop, as if I wasn't already, but we have Brazil's elections, and last week, Brazil held its second round of its presidential elections, and this is an election that was basically between Jair Bolsonaro and Lula da Silva. The official results say that Lula won by 1% on the first round and by 0.9% in the second round, but almost immediately after the first round, of elections were over, there were people in the streets protesting the outcome of the election. Protests which intensified after the second round of elections. And so you you see the videos and there's like these enormous crowds of people. Like you, you can't see the street is how thick the crowd of people is. And it's like a big open square. Like there's a big open square, there's a road leading up to it, all along the road, you can't see the street. All in, throughout the square, you can't see the street or the grass on on the on the ground. They're just it, it's just packed full of people, and some of them are waving signs. Most of them are just marching. It's it, it's mass unrest, but at the very least, it doesn't seem to be violent. At least I haven't seen videos of it being violent yet, and I haven't seen stories saying that it was violent yet. Uh, I'll I'll just leave the yet in there in case it ends up being over time, but that's a lot of people. That was a lot of people. That was a lot of people, and a lot of people are upset about the outcome of this election. And when you start to dig into the the folks involved, primarily Lula himself, you can see sort of the reason why people would be upset. And I I say sort of because there's a. a a list of reasons as to why people would be that upset. Uh, that reasons that I myself am not well versed enough to get into, but uh, apparently, Jair Bolsonaro was decently popular, at least among a large chunk of the population. I mean, half the country voted for him. Literally, <laughs> literally, he got uh, forty nine and forty nine twice. So, you have. Lots of lots of reasons, but one of the, the reasons that I, I found stuck out the most to me uh, was primarily the opposition to Lula. Because what happened around him, and this is, uh, again, what I found to be the most interesting here, is that he was convicted on corruption charges in 2017. Uh, corrected on, convicted on corruption and money laundering charges. Now, he was acquitted of these charges. He was acquitted. But the interesting thing about the acquittal was that he was acquitted by a judge on Brazil's Supreme Federal Court. That's sort of their equivalent to our Supreme Court in the United States. He was acquitted by a judge who himself was a justice appointed by Lula. So a Lula-appointed judge acquitted Lula 
of the corruption and money laundering charges. So you can you you can see where the, that sort of muddies the waters on his name. Now perhaps he wasn't guilty. But the fact that it was a judge appointed by him who made that who reached that verdict uh the it it muddies the water cuz he he was convicted this wasn't this wasn't a charge this was a conviction like he actually went to jail over corruption and money laundering so this person who is verifiably corrupt and was verifiably laundering money a judge that he appointed is the one who acquits him of these charges that he was convicted on and so you can see that this is there's a a large chunk of Brazil who views him as sort of in the unflushable swamp, so to speak, uh, as sort of representative of the corruption in Brazilian government that just doesn't go away, and they they always get away with their crimes. And now again, again, maybe he's not quite the representative of that that he's being made out to be. But when you see when you see the story like that, that he's convicted on corruption charges and then acquitted by a judge that he appointed, even uh, a judge who was appointed by a president who was convicted on corruption charges. Well, how deep does the corruption go? You, you, again, you can it's very easy to see how that just immediately muddies the waters, especially, again, the fact that he was convicted, not this wasn't like he was charged but never convicted. No, he was convicted. It muddies the waters a lot. It muddies the waters a lot. So you can see why so many people would view him as problematic. Now, I myself will refrain from saying whether he is or isn't problematic. That's just not my place. But... The official result has him up by basically one point in both the first and second rounds of the election. Bolsonaro has refrained from commenting on the, the results. He refrained from commenting for two days. And then he said he would follow through on the peaceful transition of power. But interestingly enough, he did not concede defeat in the election. He just said he would go along with the peaceful transition of power. So Lula. So that just threw even more doubt and moved more fire onto the flames of people claiming that there was election fraud. And the these claims uh, of election fraud, along with the election itself, have immediately led to comparisons to the 2020 elections in the United States. We have a number of commentators here in the U.S. making those comparisons and giving their two cents on Brazil's elections. Uh, and I guess I... I count myself as well, giving my two cents. Uh, now, some of them are in favor of Lula, and some are against him and more in line with Bolsonaro. And this sort of a divide fell primarily along party lines in the United States, with liberals and socialists favoring Lula, and conservative commentators favoring Bolsonaro. And some, and here I'm mainly talking about Steve Bannon, in his show, The War Room, some have called for Bolsonaro, and this is before, this was like when the story first broke about the elections. 
Some have called, and again, I'm talking about Steve Bannon, have called for Bolsonaro not to concede due to the election fraud. Calling for him not to concede. Now, I myself do not know enough about Brazil's elections, their constitution, their government, or their laws to make such claims like uh, fraud or cheating or funny business at the polls. I just haven't done the necessary due diligence to speak on that as I had with our own elections here in America. Because, again, you, the news coverage, the, it's the saturation of news coverage, we have plenty of it here in America. So there was plenty of people who were in my sphere of, you know, information sources who were talking about it and that I could see it and learn about it and ultimately come to a, a sound conclusion on what happened in my own opinion, you know, just th there was enough going on that you could pick apart and see uh, what did and didn't happen that I could make my conclusion. And my conclusion is that <laughs> my conclusion is that we are currently sitting underneath the fraud in chief. But I can't make similar conclusions or claims about the Brazilian election. I just don't have enough to go off of. And I haven't done the due diligence to do so. That being said, e even if I had, I don't think we here in America should be getting involved in other people's elections and their electoral processes. That's that's a line I don't believe we should cross. I mean, he Bannon literally called for this man not to concede, this man being Bolsonaro, that's interference in my book. I don't I don't think that's a line we should be crossing. Now, granted, we've crossed it many times before. Uh, we tried to cross it in Belarus. We tried to cross it in Russia. We we did cross it in Ukraine and overthrew their government in 2014. We cast doubt on the elections, uh, the referendums that happened in the occupied territories in Ukraine, which are now a part of Russia. We interfere with other people's elections all the time. But I don't think that doesn't make it a good thing. And on the case of Brazil, I don't think we should be sticking our nose into the elections of other of Brazil or other countries. I mean, Bannon straight up called for Bolsonaro not to concede. This is blatant meddling. This is blatant meddling. Now imagine if some Chinese official of some Chinese state news agency or anyone from a Russian news agency or any Russian official said in 2016 or 2020 for the loser not to concede. How do you think we would have responded to that? We would have been up in arms, you know. Uh, heck, Russia said literally nothing, and we still investigated Trump for three years. They, they said nothing. They stayed out. And we investigated Trump for three years anyway. Now imagine if any one of them had said something. Just don't concede. Even if it was 2016 and they said, hey, Trump, don't concede. And he wins. Well, congratulations. Doubt is cast on our elections. Congratulations. That's foreign meddling and interference. We are meddling in other people's elections. I don't think we should be doing that. Whether or not Bolsonaro chooses to concede, because he still hasn't, he's agreed to the peaceful transition of power, but he still hasn't conceded, at least not at the time of my recording this, whether or not he chooses to concede is a decision for him 
and ultimately the Brazilian populace to decide. That's not our place to decide. We we wouldn't appreciate so much the idea. So much as the idea of other countries interfering in our elections. We should be consistent and respect the boundaries of other countries. And that includes their elections. That includes their borders. We shouldn't just be sending our troops everywhere. But that's the story about Brazil's elections. Pretty juicy. Pretty uh, and uh, for as much as criticism as I'll give to Bannon, uh, I will say that all the coverage has been quite, quite entertaining to watch. It's been very entertaining to watch, uh, especially watching people make the comparisons to between their election and our 2020 election. Eh, it's it's been entertaining. I'll just say that much. But now we move on to the hype surrounding North Korea and their missiles. Now, I'll just start off by saying the hype isn't as great as it used to be. I remember back in back in the day, you know, in 2013 and 14, they would talk about the the range of North Korea's missiles and oh, they they have a missile that can reach Guam. Oh, they they can reach Hawaii. Oh, if they if, if this missile is real, then they they can reach all the way to the the, the Pacific coast of the United States. Uh, North Korea, the nuclear-armed power, run by uh, the, the tyrant dictator, the, the madman, Kim Jong-un. Ah, those are the days. But uh, <laughs> the hype today isn't quite as good as it used to be. Uh, I'll just say that much. But as of now, we've gotten multiple stories of how North Korea is firing off missiles. And this comes as the U.S. and South Korea were doing joint military drills. Military drills. Uh... You have all, all this talk of how North Korea can do this, North Korea can do that, North Korea is lashing out. They're firing off missiles while we're doing a, a, a military drill with the country that they are technically still at war with. We wouldn't tolerate anything like that. But they have to tolerate it because we're stronger than them. And probably South Korea is stronger than them as well. Although South Korea has the Achilles heel of their capital slash biggest city in their country being right on the border with North Korea and well within range of North Korea's artillery. So, you know, it, it's a give and take, you know. But you have this hype surrounding North Korea. And I'm thinking, okay, but nothing's going to happen because North Korea doesn't actually want the smoke. So then why are we why are we going on about this? And then I, I noticed uh, as I was looking at North Korea, because this, this is a, a hot spot that we really haven't had to deal with very much, not over the past two years. Instead, I've been I've been entertaining ideas of a, a, a Korean unification. <laughs> I uh, that's what I've been thinking about. I'm thinking about, oh, they're, they're getting closer and closer. They're they're opening up a little bit to the south. You know, they're, they're talking to the south and. I think there's a real possibility of unification between these two. And I still believe that, although I can see that that opportunity is either being wasted or we may have to wait quite a bit longer to see it come into fruition, courtesy of the Biden administration deciding that they're going to ramp up ties. And it's uh, primarily the warmongers, because they're, they're warmongers are running the show right now. But looking at North Korea... 
this is a hot spot we haven't had to deal with in a while. Things were cooling down. At least they were under Trump. Now they're heating back up. And they had cooled down so much that it's taken this long to heat them back up to where it's hot. It's getting hot where you're having these missiles. Now, the North Koreans aren't testing nukes yet. Yet. They could start again if they wanted to. They've chosen not to. But I guess we'll, we'll, we know, we'll know that we're back in the 2014 era when they start testing the nukes. But this is a hotspot we just haven't had to even look at for much. And like the Middle East, we were seeing it going in a, a generally positive direction. So now we're seeing it reverse so starkly to the point where now it's, oh, it's, uh, we're gearing up for war. It's like, where did this come from? We were talking about peace not that long ago. How do we go from peace to on the verge of war again? Uh, again, and I'll, I'll point to myself, I was openly talking about the prospect of Korean unification. Like, that's what I was on. So how do we go from that? to we're on the, the brink of war again, the tensions are spiking again, underwritten by U.S. joint drills with South Korea. We're flying bombers and fighter jets over South Korean air, airspace towards North Korea, only and then going the other direction right before you get to the border. Well, well, this isn't something we were dealing with before. How, how, do, we get, how do we get here? How do we get here? And then I started to notice that this wasn't the only hotspot that was heating up. I noticed that on the other side of the Asian landmass, things were heating up between Iran and Israel. Again, as we discussed earlier, it, Iran and Israel. We're talking about North Korea, South Korea. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Turkey getting active again in the eastern Mediterranean. That's a hot spot. That's going to be Turkey versus France and Greece. Turkey versus France and Greece, a literal fight between NATO members. That's a hotspot that's been popping up. And then you look back, back to, well, actually, before we look back to Asia, you just look north of where Turkey is, and you get the war, the the shooting war between Russia and Ukraine. This hotspot that, that was boiling and now has boiled over into a larger conflict that continues to be escalated. And leaving Ukraine on a collision course with the destruction. Now, that's, that's what it's going to end for them. I'm not convinced that there is going to be a Ukraine on the other side of this conflict. And then, in the back of our minds, we know that Taiwan is likely to be next. You have all of these conflict zones heating up all at once. Now, the instinctual response in America at the moment is to blame the man in charge for these problems. Uh, look no further than commentary on the Russo-Ukrainian war, where people compare how nothing happened in the four years under Trump, but the war starts under Biden, so therefore Biden is to blame for it. Now, I've explained in the early days of the war how NATO expansionism it was primarily to blame for the conflict, but I guess in that sense, yes, the president does bear at least some of the responsibility. But ultimately, this is an endemic problem that goes beyond whatever the current administration happens to be at the time. Because the fact that these conflicts happen is not necessarily the fault of our administrations. These conflicts will happen 
based on what happens in the region, between the countries involved. Uh, our involvement of them, however, is our fault, but not necessarily the fault of the administration, but instead the fault of our being in these places. Us being in these places is what gets us drawn into these conflicts. It's not some magical force that, oh, there's a war in Europe, so therefore America gets drawn in. Uh, that's just fake. That That's fake history that, unfortunately, many people have bought into. But if we're consistent with that idea, and this is, this is an idea that sprang up primarily from historical analysis of the Second World War, where people conflate the fact that America was in the war at the end, they conflate that and try to formulate how America was responsible for the war's beginning rather than just accepting that, sure, we were there at the end, but we didn't play much of a role in its beginning. We were pretty absent in its beginning, quite frankly. So you, when you have stuff like that, and you get the conclusion that America has a responsibility in Europe, which is just another excuse made to keep us in Europe, you know, when you get ideas like that, that become permeating throughout the minds of Americans, it, it, it just doesn't hold up. Sure, it, it, it sticks with us today, and the consequences of that mindset stick with us today. People think that we need to be involved in Europe. People might think we, we should be less involved in Europe, and we should be pivoting to Asia because China is the real enemy. But no one actually wants to leave Europe. Because people think that we need to be there. And again, that goes back to the idea that because we were involved in World War II at the end, that we somehow played a part in World War II's beginning, even though we didn't. That was a, a failure on the part of the great powers in Europe. Russia collaborated with Germany. Italy collaborated with Germany. Britain retarded France's efforts at containing Germany earlier. You would have had a balance of power had the great powers got their act together, or at the very least if France was willing to exercise an independent foreign policy, or if the British were willing to let the French do what the French wanted to do, France probably could have played a bigger role. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. They, they wanted to, and they were they wanted to, but they didn't want to be isolated because they, they, they know they can't fight Germany by themselves. So they wanted Britain with them, but that ultimately led to their downfall. But this idea that America plays a role in conflicts beginning in Europe that started with the World War II, it's just not consistent. And the reason it's not consistent is because no one applies that same standard to literally any other war that happened in Europe prior to World War II. Oh, America, America bared some of the blame for World War II starting. But America bears zero blame for World War One. America bears zero blame for the Franco-Prussian War, or the Austro-Prussian War, or the the Franco or the Austro-Frankish War, or the Schleswig-Holstein Wars, one or two. You take your pick, or the Crimean War, or the War of Greek Independence, or any of the three Balkan Wars. America's not involved. No one blames America for those. No one blames America for the, the, the Morocco crisis. 
no one blames America for no one blames America for these wars. No one blames America for the Napoleonic Wars. We we were an independent country when that began. We we were independent when the French Revolution began. No one blames America for that war. So if we're going to go with that idea that America has to be involved in Europe because we bear responsibility for when wars start in Europe, well, we'd have to be consistent with every other war that has happened in Europe since we've been an independent country. No one blames America for all these other wars, only World War II magically, and then from that point onwards, we America catches blame for what happens in Europe. It's because it's a fake idea. It's a fake idea. But it's an idea that is prevalent in the minds of people, and it is used to justify being in these places. But, well, it's used to justify being in Europe, but you can see how that idea sort of extends to other places. Oh, if we're not in the Middle East, it's a, it's a power vacuum, and we someone's got to fill the vacuum, so we have to go in. Uh, oh, if we're not in Asia, uh, China's going to take over, so we have to go in. It, just natural extensions of this idea that wars will happen because of us, it, uh, but we have to be involved so that we can stop them. It's the natural extension of that idea. So, the the all these conflicts, these hotspots that are popping up around the world, they would not affect us as much as they do. They would not be in our, our minds as much as they are were we not involved in these places. Again, with Europe being the biggest example here, but we can apply that to the Middle East, we can apply that to Asia. If we were not involved in Europe, no one would be blaming Biden. No... No one would be blaming Biden for the war in Ukraine, and no one would bother comparing him to Trump while referring to that war. We would just acknowledge that war for what it is, a, a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And perhaps even the war wouldn't have happened, because NATO wouldn't have put Russia in that position to where they felt that it was a necessary thing to do. Perhaps it wouldn't have happened if we weren't over there. That's just another thing to think about. If we were not involved in the Middle East then the tomfoolery going down between Iran and its neighbors, Arabia and Israel, wouldn't matter to us. At least not until someone got nuked. <laughs> it, not until someone got nuked, it wouldn't. But even then, it would be something we, we would read about in the newspapers and then go, oh my goodness, what a tragedy. It's a good thing we weren't over there. That, that's, how, that's how the response would be. The response would be so radically different if we were not in these places. But because we are in these places, the conflicts over there now matter over here. People say that what happens over there matters over here, but the caveat to that is we have to be over there first for what happens over there to matter over here. See what I'm saying? But, I mean, had we not bet the family farm on defending Taiwan through deterring China, then maybe we we could have been talking about the domestic production of microprocessors and semiconductors 10 years ago. Instead of us still being obtuse to that idea, this led into the game because we were so heavily invested in the idea that we were going to defend Taiwan. We were going to defend democracy on Taiwan. That that was the game plan. That was the game plan and that, that was, oh, we, we just don't need to do anything else. Now we're in a situation where it's becoming more and more painfully obvious to even the most casual of observers that China can and will win that war. 
And that's going to screw us over because we've invested so heavily in Taiwan when we should have been investing in ourselves. Now we're vulnerable. Now we're vulnerable. I mean, I look at these conflicts, these conflicts waiting to happen. In the case of Ukraine, it already has happened. I look at these and I just, I can't help but ask why we would ever want to be involved in them. But it makes no sense. No, excuse me, because it makes no sense. We, we don't have to be there. Make no mistake, we do not have to be involved in these conflicts. It is not necessary for the survival of our country that we get involved in these pending wars. And lately, I've been thinking about a statement that I believe I made in my first anniversary episode, where I said that it says a lot that every plausible scenario for World War III begins with a U.S. alliance. Now, I've been thinking about that statement a lot recently. You know, just looking at all these hotspots that are suddenly getting hot again around the world that we were able to sort of ignore for the past two years. I've been thinking about that statement a lot. And and please forgive my my arrogance in quoting myself there, but it feels apt. It feels very appropriate for what we're witnessing. Uh, especially as you get more and more talk of World War Three, World War Three, this and uh, World War Three over Ukraine, World War Three over Taiwan, and every now and then you'll you'll get the hype around World War Three with Iran, and sometimes again the hype with North Korea isn't as good as it used to be back in the day, but every now and then you get hype of World War Three with North Korea. Every plausible scenario for World War Three starts with a U.S. alliance. I mean, I'd call it a tragedy if it wasn't so transparently deliberate. Because again, we don't need to be over there. And if we weren't over there, then what happens over there wouldn't matter over here. Because we have to be over there first for what happens over there to matter over here. I'd call it a tragedy if it wasn't so deliberate. And I, I just, I can't help but think of all the missed opportunities we could have taken and all the benefits of those opportunities that we could be reaping right now had we taken them. Had we taken them? I mean, again, I'll always point to that example with China and Australia when they got into that trade war and the Chinese embargoed their imports of Australian coal. They banned imports of Australian coal. We could have stepped in and sold American coal to China. That's American jobs. That's American industry. That's American production. That's real physical products being produced here in the United States that we're selling to China. That helps with the trade deficit. China's a coal-dependent country right alongside India and right alongside the entire continent of Africa. This is one of the largest consumers of coal. We could have got in on that deal. We could have got in on that deal. And the sure, the Australians would have just had to pound sand but that was an opportunity that we could have had. Were we willing to take it? Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. So, I, it's just, I can't help but think about it. You know, all, all the missed opportunities. 
and all the benefits we could have had. Uh, I guess another missed opportunity would be continuing and maintaining our energy independence, but that's a story for another day. We don't... I, I it, You look at all these places that we don't need to be in that we're talking about being in, and the only reason we're talking about being in these places is because of a war that might pop up. It's so unnecessary, at least in my view. Because I, I mean what I say when I say that isolationism is the best way forward for America. It's not something that's going to bring world peace. I'm not certain anything can do that. But it can bring peace to the country that matters the most to me, which is America. And by extension, it can bring peace to almost all the countries we are at war with. And I think that'd be a brighter future. A brighter future for a lot of people. And definitely a brighter future for the United States. Maybe you'll agree. Maybe you'll disagree. But alas, that's where I stand. And that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. There's so many opportunities out there. I said it in my second anniversary episode. We just have to be willing to take them. We need to be willing to maneuver a little bit so that we can take them. We'd be much more flexible without the U.S. alliance system, and we'd be much better off without it. And it looks like that alliance system is going to be torn down forcibly rather than on our own terms. But hopefully it still ends up well for us all in the end. But regardless of how the world changes, we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.